Welcome to season two of Elevate from Elevation Barn. I'm Ted Guidotti. This season will continue to engage with some of the planet's most curious, generous, and accomplished leaders as they dig in, reach out, and pivot to find their own personal and collective paths of purpose. In each episode, we turn the challenges they face into conversations, and those conversations into clarity. In 1825, the French judge, lawyer, and politician, Jean-Antoine Briand Savary wrote, in French, of course, tell me what you eat, and I'll tell you what you are. He was one of the first to tie what we consume and everything that goes into it with our true identity. As you might have guessed, his words evolved into the commonly used phrase, you are what you eat. But the conversation you're about to hear is about more than what we consume with our mouths. Who we are deep down is about what we consume with our eyes, our ears, our skin, our lungs, our minds, and our hearts. It's about how the biosphere we're a part of defines everything we are, both physiologically and psychologically. Abigail Ailing and Mark Van Thilo probably know this more intimately than almost anyone. They are two of eight scientists who spent two years in a three-acre complex of glass domes and pyramids that included a coral reef, a rainforest, a desert, and a mangrove. They grew their own food, formed their own traditions, and saw firsthand how their actions affected their biosphere, along with everyone and everything in it. Unlike Earth, also known as Biosphere 1, where it can take hundreds or even thousands of years for those effects to be measured, Biosphere 2 reacted to their every move both quickly and definitively, in both positive and negative ways. Abigail and Mark came away with a very simple lesson for all of us, that there are no small actions in our world, or any world, only actions that harm our biosphere and the creatures who live there, and actions that help them. Here they are in conversation with fellow barn member and self-described biospherian groupie, Dave Campbell. Thank you for all joining. And the Elevate podcast is very proud to be engaging and introducing two spectacular people, Abigail Ayling and Mark Van Thilo. When we met, I was absolutely enamored by their incredible story, a story of huge generosity, huge impact, and also the, the real celebration of what, how science and, and how we can help our planet is realistically the next chapter that we're all moving into versus hearing about all the challenges and sitting back and doing very little about it. These two are selflessly causing incredible change around the world. And then Dave, thanks a million, mate, for stepping in here and leading us through this conversation of exploration on the incredible journey that these two have taken since their youth all the way to what they're doing with the Biosphere Foundation in North Bali. So take it away. I'll leave it with you, mate. Awesome. Thank you. I'm going to try not to geek out too hard here. Really, really excited to, to be here with these two scientists who really have dedicated their entire lives to making our, our planet a better place. And to quote Gay, I'm just going to read this here. They participated in the dynamic management of our biosphere. And I thought that was pretty interesting because we can easily kind of talk about how we're screwing up things, but maybe it'd be more interesting to talk about steps that they've taken and steps that we can take to make things better. And so, I mean, I guess we can start sort of in a basic way and maybe you can describe what is a biosphere and why was this one biosphere two? 
and how did you come to be involved in it? The biosphere encompasses all life as we know it on this planet, and that includes not just living things, five kingdoms of life at, at all. It includes an atmosphere and it includes the geology. It includes death. It includes life. So if you will, biosphere one is the Earth's biosphere, our life support system as we know it, all of us. We share one biosphere, biosphere one. And Biosphere 2 was a man-made miniature closed world system, 3.15 acres, that we were so lucky to be a part of back in the 80s and then subsequently live in for two years. And how did you guys get to be involved? I mean, that's, there were only eight of you. There was a little bit of a self-selection process because all the people that ended up living inside also were critical to the building and the design of it. I was asked to become involved in Biosphere 2 as the quality controller for construction. And I slowly, slowly worked my way in as the guy that knew where all the switches and how to turn everything on. So it was, uh, I was in charge of technical systems. And what was sort of the philosophy of Biosphere 2 of putting eight scientists in this closed mini planet for two years i mean yeah we wanted to see if it actually was possible can you take an area completely seal it airtight use all the water that we started with and recycle all the water this we're talking 1980s can you actually close the loop on recycling is something going to happen to the water that wasn't known then uh, so could we maintain an atmosphere and also can we grow enough food for eight people on a half an acre. That was our task. Let's see if we could actually do that. I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the challenges you faced in that two-year period while you were inside. Yeah. Of all the challenges, the greatest was the human. And we also had the ocean. The coral reef was the most difficult biome to be sure we were taken care of well. Carbon dioxide was the most difficult biosphere management task we had. We had carbon dioxide that would soar to, it actually at one point soared as much as 4,800 ppm. We are somewhere right now at 425 ppm CO2. Um, we had oxygen plummet to 14.2, and we, we maintained it from then on at 16%. And all of these have stories. The, the coral reef uh, was the only, the first and the only living coral reef artificially made at the size of a million gallons. And everything about it was a complex story. So in terms of bias for two, it was in a temperate light regime. Well, all coral reefs, unless they're deep ocean reefs, are in a tropical light regime. So they don't have falls and winters and springs and summers and the light changing and the corals getting bleaching due to light, they tend to live in really precise nutrient-loaded, or in, in this case, not loaded seas. So managing a sustainable cycle for the coral reef, given that life tends to produce waste, and then you have to remove that was always a significant factor. Um, and it was cold outside. It was the Arizona winters, et cetera. And it had to be maintained through the Technics at a very precise level to keep the corals healthy. And we managed to do that. So all of these things, just to name a few, 
real-time learning about living in a biosphere and the same challenges we're dealing with right now, we dealt with. And the oxygen story was fascinating because, uh, first of all, we had a system that was tight enough that you could measure oxygen decline. So we had a leak rate of 1% per year, which in that 20 mile, and this is only in the cork, the 20 mile corking, that meant a hole the size of a pin, of a uh, hairpin. So that's a very slow rate. So by the time we were at 14, after 14 months, we were at 14.2% uh, oxygen. We knew, that because calculating the weight of the atmosphere, we knew we were missing 20 tons. And 20 tons is a semi-truck load of oxygen. So in a closed system, where is it? And then the search went on. And, you know, we were also pre-internet. Right now, we could put something like that out on the internet and say, this is what's happening to us. If anybody have any ideas? In those days, it was all word of mouth. So somebody suggested it probably is, you have too much iron in your soil, uh, probably oxidizing there. So we took cores out of that and looked if there was any oxidation. But yes, there was some, but not at that level. An obvious one was the coral reef was making it into calcium carbonate. And maybe there was a layer on the bottom of the ocean that was making calcium carbonate. So we took samples of that. And sure, it was not there either. Then somebody at the uh, Columbia University said, why don't you take a look in the concrete? Because he was dealing with a problem called car carbonization, where many bridges around in the world after 20 or 30 years, the cement keeps curing and you have that process of carbonization where the CO2 gets further and further in the concrete. So taking that up and it becomes a problem because then the oxygen start attacking the steel of the concrete. So sure enough, so we took a, a sample on the inside and a sample on the outside. Inside we had high levels of CO2, outside low levels. Now, we made that comparison, and sure enough, it counted for 20 tons of uh, CO2 that was stored in that concrete. Now, um, you mentioned, Kay, that uh, the coral reef was this very sensitive system, and it was the most difficult system. And, and it seems like what you learned there has kind of carried you to where you are now in terms of your attachment to studying coral. Can you talk about what you learned about coral and how it? Uh, reflects what's going on in that biosphere and how our coral is also doing the same in biosphere one and where, where your journey went after biosphere uh, regarding that. When we were living inside, I was responsible for the, the coral reef primarily and, and laser was uh, also as a diver and also from the management of the technical side and you know, when anything went down, whether the waves or the currents or anything like that, we would both be on call. And we began to notice, uh, and we also became stewards. We also became grazers. We would be the parrotfish to harvest the algae from the reef and, and, and recycle that back into the marsh or wherever. And we, we both began to notice that the changing colors of the coral, just like we see when you snorkel or dive now, has everything to do with the health of our overall biosphere. So if the coral reef was well, then our biosphere was well. And we also knew that if our biosphere was well, we were well. 
So it became, you know, a very, it was an indicator biome for our management of Biosphere 2, that we could quickly wake up in the morning and go, okay, how is the coral reef responding today? In a simplistic way, but, but true. And of course, today, that's the exact analogy for, for climate change, because with water temperatures rising in a day, you can lose a reef. So it's, it really is an indicator for overall well-being. When we left Biosphere 2, we decided that we really wanted to explore that idea. So if, if ocean's a water planet, which it is, and coral reefs are the indicator to the health of the ocean and thus the health of our biosphere, and thus our health, well, what is Biosphere 1 saying? So we launched an expedition for, it was a 14-year-plus journey with 48 coral reef sites around the tropics, and we found that two-thirds of the reefs were disappearing, and that was 1995 to 2008. This is before the cause of alarm bells about the ocean and coral reefs was going off. It was new. We were definitely pioneers and interested in, in finding out. And that's what we found out. And it, of course, agrees with what other organizations have since discovered, is that two-thirds of the reefs, reefs, no matter where they are, are disappearing. So that was a pretty serious reflection on, okay, well, then that means our oceans are disappearing. It means our biosphere is disappearing. It means we are, our future of our, for humanity is uncertain. Well, and they are small things, like after 15 years of doing that expedition, the question came, can we actually save a reef? Can you protect a reef? And especially then, everybody was talking, the uh, temperatures are rising in the ocean, so it's all doomed anyway. And so, so we, we started with the Menjangan Reef and found that the biggest problem there was of the damage was anchoring of diving boats and the necessity for mooring buoys. So we started in, uh, installing mooring buoys. Then, of course, uh, you have sedimentation from either construction, but there was a lot of sedimentation from the taking out of trees up on the mountain that then, when the rains came, put all, out all that sediment on, on the reef. So we also started planting trees and started the reforestation project. So the little things, which I believe is planting trees, basically taking care of nature, the practices of not using toxic materials in your daily lives, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things then became what we learned in Biosphere 2 is what we then tried to implement in, in Biosphere 1. You mentioned your boat and have you tell people about the research vessel that you have moored out front called the Mirror and its upcoming voyage. Can you, can you talk about that? During all of these years that we were doing the expedition, we about 12 years ago, we found an old, right now, uh, 120 years old, built in 1910, uh, an old yacht in the Mediterranean in Malta that we, it had grass growing out of it, uh, out of the deck. We fixed that up and then started because we, we wanted to keep a ship sailing around the world with that message and to keep looking at the coral reefs. If they are the indicator species, we want to really keep a very close look at our corals and, and see how they are doing. So now this expedition, this new expedition with a whole new crew coming in, uh, we will start with a dry dock 
hopefully in Singapore, but it all depends right now. There are all of our plans, of course, depending on what is happening in the world right now. But we will go around the coral reef triangle for three years with that same kind of message and with the idea of finding partners, and especially around Indonesia, which is the, you know, the heart of the coral reef triangle, to do just those things that we've done in Bali with the Menjangan Reef and with our center. So to create a chain of connections and network with like-minded people doing these uh, kinds of trainings. Of, and of course, every ecology has its own challenges. So it will be depending on different islands. Uh, different islands will have different challenges. The ship, of course, itself is an amazing training vessel because what you start out with at your expedition, the people that you have, the materials that you have, the knowledge that you have, is what will have to take you around. So that's in short, upcoming up expeditions, starting in, or wanting to start in April. It'll be a, a three-year voyage starting in next year to take the ship all the way to the remote, far east side of Indonesia, north and south. Robin Gurney has a question that sort of pertains to that. Robin, are you, are you there? Actually, it's your daughter Havana's question um, as okay. to whether the Biosphere 2 still exists and whether, uh, is it something that could be visited as a structure? Well, yeah, it, it still exists. And uh, right now it's under management of the University of Arizona, who is doing all kinds of uh, experiments and really good work with it. It is not treating it as a biosphere, though. It is not using it as a closed system. But they are, they are doing good work with it. That's great. Um, Roshi, do you, you have a question? I do, I do. Um, I know it's, it's more interesting to hear about uh, all the things that we can do, but I'm curious more from a nostalgic sense. Uh, what's something you miss about living in Biosphere 2? Well, oh, I, I miss it tremendously. We helped build it. It was something we, uh, I love, still love. I felt like when it, when it was no longer a biosphere, it, was, it changed hands and went to become a, a different kind of a laboratory and it's no longer able to function as a living system and life was taken out of it and water and et cetera. I felt it had been killed. I felt I had lost a child. I felt um, I'd lost part of me. Um, and certainly the, the relationship with Biosphere 2 lives long, just like if someone dies, you, you carry all that with you. But yeah, I, I miss it as, as a part of me, as something that I love very much. Yeah, I, w I would say I, I miss the buzz around Biosphere 2, all the people coming to Biosphere 2 to see what it, how it was doing, uh, with all the questions of how a Biosphere works and all the different ideas that were discussed, uh, it, it was amazing. It was, to me, in many ways, it was almost like the Renaissance, an ecological Renaissance. Like what materials can we use? What, uh, what are best practices in, in the biosphere, in agriculture, in rainforests? And all the people that are, were working in those different places would come to the biosphere. And especially right now, I think this, the, you know, to understand that there was no internet there then, so people had to travel there, writing letters, actually faxes, et cetera, et cetera. But 
you knew internet was coming in many ways because that discussion had to take place. And it was fascinating. And to me, that stimulation was, was fascinating. Thank you. Brett has a, has a question that's a little more uh, location specific for those of us here in Indonesia. Brett, are you there? Uh, yeah, simple question. Um, if you could give us a brief um, update on the assessment of the state of the biosphere in this Indonesian archipelago, uh, and if you could let us know, you know, where the most critical uh, stress points are. You know, Indonesia's on the verge of a, some sort of environmental chaostrophe. <laughs> I'd love to hear your assessment on that and, um, and where we need to give special attention. Thank you. Anywhere you look in the world, it's a problem, <laughs> isn't it? So with Indonesia, you're, you're spot on though. It is the biological center for uh, species, for diversity, land and sea. It is perhaps the mother of the earth in terms of the wealth that can evolve and restore eventually. So the, the challenges are most, you know, from, from that viewpoint are then protecting any nature that's left. So um, trying to create, well, that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to create a movement by the people, for the people, that is related to policy, but is, is not. Because in the end of the day, it's going to have to come down to all of us being a biosphereian and getting involved in deciding you're going to do something yourself to help create wealth in biodiversity and in, in these kinds of ideas of sustainability and food webs. So for me, that's, that's number one. Because the biosphere is being degraded, disease is right on our face. And, you know, it's going to be something that is now forever in our face until we start to restore the health of our, our life support system. And in Biosphere 2, just as an analogy, we didn't get sick because we had a wealth of ecology that was keeping us alive. And only the eight of us, which was not a big human population to be stressed about. So we showed, we proved to ourselves at least that disease isn't an issue unless you're living in sickness and you're sick. And that is living in squalor, disease, pollution, degradation. So the health of bringing that back, the, the, the focal point for Indonesia is keeping its biological diversity healthy and well. That's a that's a, sort of like what we like to call and elevate the grand challenge, you know, <laughs> and it's a great way to wind up our time here. We're running out of time. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to ask everybody's questions, but what an amazing journey to go on with you guys. And, and, uh, and I hope some of these people are hearing it for the first time because it's, it's rock star stuff in my mind. So it's been absolutely amazing to, to hear your story and your journey and how you went from Arizona to northwest coast of Bali. Sort of our uh, last question I'd like to ask is how can we help you guys, especially in the Biosphere Foundation here on Bali and, and, and what can people do on a day-to-day -day level even uh, wherever they are that can, that can help? Yeah, we're, we're really grateful to you, Will, and now Dave, and now all of you for taking time with us. And we feel like we're beginning to get to know a community that we've been longing to know. We're living in Bali now. It's our home and all these exciting things going on. And come and see us and take a coral steward course or I don't know. We, we are looking to build capacity every which way. And that includes building local presence in, in the communities wherever we are, your community too, 
to start giving some of these tools to the people who are living there, loving it, and caring for it, so they can start to move. And it's, it's happening to start to take back, if you will, our biosphere. Yeah, it's ours to care for and to love. It's time. That's great. Will, do you have anything to add here at the end? Gay and, and Laser, thank you so much. You've just, you just reignite that childlike curiosity that is the reason that humanity will be able to stay in existence. And your stories, your, you know, to thank us for helping you after you're helping tirelessly the planet is, is incredible. You're such humble, beautiful people. I, I take away that brilliant lesson that, that you highlighted before, that we have to have a higher level purpose above ourselves. And that's the thing that kept you all going in the biosphere too. But we have to keep that balance of it's not about us, it's about what we can do. And I don't think there is a better cause, a better foundation to support than the Biosphere Foundation by Munjangan. And we are going to drive that as a key Elevation Barn ambition to support you in every way, tie in what's happening with the Green School community. And to be able to let our children be part or even connect to the wisdom and the, the impact that you have all created, we'd be primates to even not think about that. And so this is a really critical opportunity. And I thank you both for, for being so generous with your time. Dave, absolutely magical. And uh, you're all beautiful people. I'm honored to know you all. And thank you so much for inspiring this audience today. Biosphere Foundation, you rock. Thank you so much indeed. Thank Bye, you. The implications of creating an artificial biosphere 2 pale in comparison to creating an artificial biosphere 1. Join us for season 2, episode 5, with Henry Hippinen, Chief Innovation Officer at FinLabs, to talk about how AI will change everything and nothing here on Earth. <laughs>